You're listening to Consolidate That. Ukraine is my motherland. It is now under a savage attack by Russia. Ukraine is shielding Europe and the rest of the civilized world from Putin's barbaric aggression. Ukrainians are brave and effectively fighting back. Let's help. Make a donation to Armed Forces of Ukraine. Link is in the show notes. Hashtag stand with Ukraine. Welcome back to Consolidate That. Ivan, I was planning on, I overnight I had sort of brainstormed that you and I hadn't seen each other in a, in a few days. And I was going to say, oh, it's so nice to see you. And I miss seeing you. But then we had a conversation this morning. So I scrapped that whole monologue now. And instead, I'll let you introduce our guest today. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm a little, I'm excited and a little worried that you think of me overnight, but uh, I'll take it as a compliment. Every, every <laughs> night, really. <laughs> so, hi, I'm Ivan Zach. I'm very excited about our guest today. So, our guest is a Dr. Donna Gurney. Dr. Donna Gurney is the founder of Tutum Psychology. She has over 15 years of experience of working in mental health, both in and outside the NHS, which is for our North American listeners, is the healthcare system in the UK. She specializes in adolescent and working age adult mental health. She's a health and care professions counsel and clinical psychologist. Dr. Gurney is also a British Psychological Society registered chartered clinical psychologist. Outside her private practice, she's passionate about workplace well-being. She writes for a magazine, The Veterinary Edge, and is also an active trustee for the charity Vets in Mind, which is where we met. Dr. Gurney, welcome to the show. Thank you for finding the time. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be a part of this. That's a great background. Yeah. Um, so we uh, we chose as a topic for this um, episode, Resilience to Stress and Burnout in Veterinary Surgeons. Uh, again, to our North American listeners, that's what they call veterinarians in the UK, veterinary surgeons. Uh, I don't know why it's so specific, but <laughs> but that is the name. <laughs> so uh, I guess uh, some vets in, in, in North America, I know they don't do surgeries. Not everybody likes that. So. I was going to say, no um, vaccines. Don't bring your vaccinations in the UK then, that's right? right? Veterinary surgeons <laughs> are very highly skilled. So, Dr. Gurney, um, yes. the re resilience as a term, where it comes from, why do we talk about resilience? So we talk a lot about burnout, and then there's also resilience. So I guess it's sort of the, the one to contract another one. And um, in your uh, clinical practice, um, how do you uh, meet the topics of resilience? And is it the training? Is it something that uh, that people gain over time? And are there certain professions are more vulnerable than others? Uh, so resilience is a quite a complex and multidimensional construct that involves a wide range of factors uh, that facilitate a positive adaptation to adversity. So resilience is, it's, there's a lot of arguments about the definition of resilience in the literature. Some describe it as a trait, uh, some describe it as a process of interaction between the individual and the environment, while some describe it as a consequence or an outcome. Um, for example, is the post-traumatic growth of what they call PTG. Um, so for me, the way I see it as a clinician, it's, it's a combination of both. So it's both intrapersonal, so it sits as a trait, it is also interpersonal. So it is dynamic in its nature, so it interacts with the environment. 
and the people around it as well. So to answer your question in terms of, are there people who are more vulnerable or perhaps more resilient? I suppose it's to answer that question, if I were to answer that as a trait, resilience, seeing resilience as a trait, then yes, perhaps. But then at the same time, I'm a firm believer that um, mental health doesn't exist in isolation. And there's always a context to it. However resilient you are, if you grew up in a home that's chaotic and unstable, then that is likely to influence the way you see yourself and the way you manage difficult circumstances, so coping strategies. And that's when we learn helpful and unhelpful coping strategies. It's very interesting. So, so would you say that the resilience is something that is built due to circumstances or is that something that we should develop when we are in the circumstances which require resilience? Ah, that's yeah. Again, that is the point of debate in a lot of scientific studies, because some argue that resilience can only be measured when there is a presence of risk or an adversity. Otherwise, how can you possibly say that one is resilient when there is nothing to uh, test the person's resilience on the first place? So unfortunately, there isn't really one answer to that, um, because for the past 40 years, there hasn't been no one has ever come up with a single definition apart from there is um, you know, the most common def definitions out there, if one Googles, you know, the definition of resilience would be uh, bouncing back from adversity, leaping back from adversity, or um, that positive adaptation. But for me as a clinician, I like to be a little bit more specific because people use it as a very generic word, which is, you know, resilience. How do we develop resilience? As a clinician, my question would be resilience to what? Is it resilience to stress, resilience to burnout, resilience to depression? Because it's a mental health is quite a, a big, big topic. So it's very hard when people say, how do we improve resilience? So maybe if I'll, I'll try to extrapolate it on my example and the question that I have, I don't want to turn it into my therapy session, sure. but, <laughs> but I just want to bring the example from the veterinary perspective. So, so sure. I, I burned out in my uh, experience in veterinary practice. And I considered myself before that quite a resilient guy. I'm coming from the tough background. I'm from Ukraine. And, uh, and I thought that I'm quite resilient person. But then when I went through the burnout, I think that did I stress the system too much by doing emergency work and nights and sleep deprivation and the, the stress of euthanasia continuously? That's now I'm reflecting on this. Um, so did I push? beyond my resilience or is it something that i've been developing the background doesn't matter but within the environment and that's probably i want to translate it to the whole um, industry how the veterinarians differ in this sort of concept of resilience do they build it along the way but sometimes they push themselves further than they're resilient or wh where's this problem of burnout in, in veterinary medicine come from i think from my personal experience of working with vets and also from the scientific literature, I think uh, the problems, um, for example, burnout and stress within the veterinary industry um, is um, 
precipitated and perpetuated by a range of factors. Um, you're spot on there when you said, maybe I pushed myself to my limit. Um, as a clinician, I'll be more interested at how are your self-care practices? Do you actually look after yourself? Do you set firm boundaries between home and work life? Are you valued at work? Do you feel supported? Do you feel that there's a strong um, support from your peers? Um, is the practice that you're working at or with offering you career progression? Are you feeling stuck in your career? Are you, you know, so it's a, it's a whole range of factors. Uh, to me, I'm not at all surprised for anyone really who right from the start, they think that they're a resilient person and then all of a sudden they get hit with this burnout. I, I suffered from um, compassion fatigue, um, right, maybe halfway through the pandemic, but that's because I was working very extended hours uh, without, you know, I wasn't working for the money, I wasn't getting paid for it, but I was doing four extra hours of work in the evening just to make sure that the work gets done. And then I got to a point one day where I don't, I wasn't feeling anything anymore. I was talking to someone who was completely traumatized and upset and I just didn't have any emotional reaction. And that's when I thought, gosh, <laughs> it's not safe for me to carry on practicing as a clinician. And that exactly the same situation as you, I thought I was a pretty resilient person. Um, and also there's that idea that if you train as a clinician, surely you're prepared for that kind of work, but obviously, Maybe not. So Dr. Kearney, would you think that practices and veterinary practices should work to create an environment that doesn't, that doesn't require resilience in the sense that it should create a space that doesn't open people to the need to be resilient? I, I know this is kind of a, a roundabout question, but I wonder, um, you know, I think of like a boxer, I don't need to be trained to be a boxer because I never intend to get hit in the face. Um, so should the practice be guarding people to make sure that they can come into work and, and work in a place where they can feel protected? Or is that something that I, as the individual, whether it's the veterinarian or the technician or anyone in the industry should build up their own plans and mechanisms to be able to cope with that? Should it come? I think it, the responsibility to develop that resilience. Um, and I also believe that individuals' uh, well-being shouldn't be left at an individual responsibility, as an individual responsibility. I think it should be, there should be a collaborative effort between the individual and the organization. And also the academia, the university, preparing their vets to become resilient clinicians. So during my training as a clinical psychologist, we are routinely exposed to role plays. And even the medical doctors in this country are routinely exposed to role plays because we work with people who can be highly emotional. We work with very, in a very highly emotive environment. Um, so I think it should be everyone's responsibility, not just yours, but the university and the, the, the employer that you work for. It's very interesting. The one thing that I found through my experience being an emergency veterinarian, this is something that I almost was 
kind of feeling satisfaction of the stressful situation. I don't know if it's common among the practitioners and maybe in human health care on in the veterinary. The, I felt that the more stress I get from the patients, the more calm I become myself. I don't know why, but it was, it's been sort of this feeling when people are in distress talking about their pet being you know, sick, that they're going to lose, convincing people that, that this is maybe a right decision right now to put down your pet. So is that a mm -hmm. common defense mechanism of the person to kind of, you know, the more stress there is to kind of counterbalance that? Or is it is it is it is it common among the veterinarians or the, the human healthcare practitioners? I think you're just admitted, Ivan. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good answer. <laughs> no, I think it's a fairly common defense mechanism for sure. Interesting. Um in the same way that when a client in front of me gets very, very upset, I need to be able to contain that. In therapy, that is what they call holding and containing. Hmm. So say for example, I'll make it a lot easier. As a child, you're very scared of darkness. And say for example, there's a power cut and you're freaking out and telling your mom, mom, I'm really scared because it's so dark. If your mum responds to you and say, it's okay, don't worry, it's fine. You know, light's going to come back, nothing to be scared about. You're going to feel quite calm and reassured. Whereas if your mum's freaking out as well, <laughs> that's not exactly very helpful. <laughs> so that is the process of holding it and containing it. it, it it's kind of almost you, when you work as a clinician, whether you're in human health or animal health care, there is that natural, I think it comes natural to most of us to be able to hold and contain. Otherwise, you, should, you shouldn't be in that job on the first place. So take it, take it from the side where, you know, Ivan, and I think probably, Ivan, that background that you have is what leads you to be a good leader and a CEO of startups, right? There's a lot of times where people <laughs> around us are freaking out about things, but it's your job to say, hey, we got this, this is coming together, the pieces will come together, we can make this work. And the team needs to get on board with that. But if we take it out from a lot of times, I think the veterinarians and the people working in the clinics are expected to be the calm waters for the patients and the clients that are coming in. But I think what we're trying to figure out too is how the owners of the clinics and the, the leadership of the clinics can be that reassurance for their team. Mm -hmm. um, not always expecting, you know, like we saw during the pandemic, the nurses and the staff and the team that were dealing with the front lines, they needed someone to reach out to them um, as badly as they were taking the time to reach out to others. So I think mm -hmm. that's something that we should definitely think about within the clinics and the ownership of clinics um, to be able to be a, a compassionate organization because you know that people are, are struggling with those things. Definitely. And it goes back to what I said earlier, that individual res resilience shouldn't just sit at an individual level. Um, we should look after each other. Um, more importantly, the managers, I think, because often we just focus on those who are burning out or those who are struggling. But, but really, in reality, um, we should be equipping everyone so that um, when the storm comes, then you're able to survive that storm together. Um, and I think a lot of the time, the focus is 
moved away from the managers because they're not the one who that yes they're managing the practices but they're not the one who's at the you know the brunt of the very highly emotive day-to-day -day scenarios in practices it'll be the receptionist or you know the nurses the vets I mean, I, it may look different in the US, but here in the UK, um, that's what vets tell me. And that's what um, people, are, you know, at reception tell me that they find it, they, they really, really struggle. So I think definitely, to me, I don't know whether you've seen the Harvard uh, Business Review in 2019, that, um, that is this headline that wellness programs don't work. Um, <laughs> wellness initiatives don't work. There is no match to unhelpful or toxic workplace. So that's why it's really important to embed the supportive practices, not just to call in for help when you need it, because it doesn't work like that, unfortunately. Yes, it may just lift the, the mood or shift the mood a little bit. But so that's why what you're doing, Ivan, is really different. And that's what that's always what I wanted to do like I told you with the other initiative that I was doing because I don't think the quick fixes really work it really should there should be um, a change a systemic change if we are to really improve the resilience of, of, of the workforce yeah, and that's that's what we're after. My my firm belief that there is an environment that needs to be changed, and the well-being practices and meditation and everything else. I think those are very important practices, but but that's a, just a part of the solution. So what we're trying to do at Galaxy, we're trying to implement systemic systemically environment in which you just don't get there. But do you find, and what's your experience in the UK, that because veterinarians are continuously exposed to the situation that they need to be more resilient and they're these sort of calming and you know holding pattern, are they more shy to actually call out when they feel that there's a problem? Do they feel like they're failing on their resilience and therefore they're not seeking for help? Is that is that why we're ending where we're ending? That's the sense that I get. Um, I have worked in mental health for over 15 years. And um, prior to delivering a webinar for the vets in the thick of the pandemic here in the UK, I have never had a vet as a patient. Never, never even. And I've, I've been to different services in the NHS, never met a single one. So to me, that's what's triggered by curiosity, what's going on here, what's getting in the way, especially with the really ominously high rate of suicide. Um, it just didn't make sense to me because I work with a lot of medical doctors and they're very good at seeking help. Um, it, it helps that the system um, is built to be really supportive and protective of the medical doctors. They're the first one to say, stop working, you need to be seen and they get seen straight away and to me there is that very they value their doctors um they have this they don't have that myopic um approach you know very short-sighted well if i let you off then that means that we're gonna lose money but really you lose more money if the person goes off sick for a year or more you know that's again that's what we're saying financially in the last three and a half or four years that we've been working with the consolidators which is just sort of the slice that we decided to to apply this to because this is more at scale uh, first we thought maybe it's sort of methodology or something that we teach to individual hospitals but you just can't get 
many enough buy-in so so we thought that maybe by working with consolidators we will convince that by not doing any of these practices your it's direct impact on your revenue on your bottom line and everything mm -hmm. else and uh, unfortunately we feel like we failed to convince them because everybody was looking just at that without seeing the cause and effect and and that's why sort of we started applying what we were applying but is there is there instruments in the environment that we can learn from healthcare? Why why do the doctors why are they more open to this? Or what is in their environment that we can adopt in veterinary medicine? So veterinarians are more open. Well, first of all, they recognize because I think that they just don't recognize and they're trying to hold it inside. And then until it blows up, and you know, in worst case scenarios with a suicide, but is are there patterns where people can learn that this behavior means that you know this is what's happening with me yeah, there's systemic things that because i know that the pediatrics I, I know that in north america there's limitation on the amount of hours that you can work just like truck drivers or um or pilots yeah. or lorry drivers i guess in in the uk <laughs> and uh yeah they have limit of hours they can work so is there something like those practices that could be applied in veterinary medicine similar to human healthcare? i think so um in terms of why, say for example, medical doctors are able to spot it quicker, I think that's more to do with the knowledge that they have. Um, it's now embedded in, the, in their curriculum, um, but when they do go on training, they do a rotation in mental health, um, whether they're going into mental health or not. So when I was um, working as a consultant, I, all, I routinely get to sit down as um, and, and junior doctors observing me because they're learning the process and we get a chance to to talk um, and catch up quite regularly so they're very much familiar with um mental health and that, that's there's been a kind of a big a, a big campaign on on shifting that really educating people the sense that i got from the veterinary industry especially when i delivered a couple of webinars the most the, the, the most common questions that I, I received were, how do I tell my doctor? What are the right words to say so that my doctor recognizes that I'm having, I don't know, some kind of a problem. So there's a complete lack of um, knowledge on mental health, perhaps because culturally the, Brit, the Brits are notorious for his stepping up a lip. You don't talk about your difficulties. People don't talk about their difficulties. And a lot of the vets that I've spoken to, they tell me they shy away. They're very reticent to talk about their problems because they're worried about being seen as weak or a snowflake. And in terms of measures that you can do, I think starting with embedding mental health in the curriculum, uh, really, I believe, at a university level, and also um, for practices, especially the corporate ones, the big ones here in the UK, they, there's a shift now from uh, independent practices to being bought by, you know, these big corporate companies to really um, educate their people where, to, so that they're able to understand that actually, this is what depression looks like. This is what anxiety looks like. And also one of the things that's different between animal healthcare clinicians and human healthcare clinicians is that as clinical psychologists and medical doctors, we routinely receive clinical supervision. And this is something that I've raised um, 
it, you know, with the vets that I have spoken to, are you doing this? Clinical supervision is when you are, um, when you have got the time to talk about difficult cases, um, any gaps in your skills and knowledge, but also more importantly, to talk about your mental health. Um, and that should be a safe place um, for you. So as a clinician, no matter how high you get, you still get that. You should, that, that's, that's a requirement from the regulating bodies that I should be getting clinical supervision on a regular basis. Um, that it's, it doesn't just in, in, ensure that patient healthcare is of as satisfactory, if not an excellent level, that your clinical practice is safe and that you are okay as a person. That, that you know that there's that everything that's going on outside work and inside work is something that is um talked about obviously that's a personal preference if you're the type of person who's quite private and in clinical supervision you don't want to talk about your mental health that's that's fair but it is highly encouraged so it's almost expected that you talk about your well-being in clinical supervision that's wonderful that's that's definitely something that we should um look at in, in the university situation to be able to implement. Um, now I, I know I could probably listen to you for a few hours here. And like Ivan said, it's like, uh, diving into my own personal therapy session, which is spectacular. <laughs> so thank you so much. This was, this was great. But as our, as our promise to our listeners, we like to keep our time straight and tight with them. But, um, what is a question we always ask is what is a book that you would recommend for someone to read so that they can actually take on some of these steps and some of the things you're talking about? I've got two in mind, but I think the one that I prefer to recommend would be the, um, uh, the mindful self-compassion workbook, because it teaches people how to look after themselves better. I think it comes very, very natural for us to be compassionate to other people. We often give very different advice to other people when they are going through something difficult. And we often do the opposite of the advice that we give to other people, such as, oh, you know, be kind to yourself, look after yourself. But when we find ourselves in this exactly the same situation, we do the opposite. We push ourselves. We give, we give ourselves a hard time. We self-attack, we self-criticize. So uh, that book is really good. I, I, I like the simplicity of the language. It's very, um, it's very easy to understand. It's something that people can do in their own time. So. Definitely highly re recommended. It's a uh, Kristin Neff. That's wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. And we'll make sure that we have a link to, to that in the, in the notes. That's wonderful. Well, Dr. Gurney, thank you so much for finding the time. I know this is an evening for you. Um, so we really appreciate that. Um, and I'm really excited to see, um, where your further research in veterinary domain is going to go. I know that you're uh, interested in understanding what we do and how we do in the industry and hopefully for the right reason, you have more patients as veterinarians, not because we have more people with the condition, but because <laughs> people are more open to seek help. That's that's the goal for me to really, um, yeah, uh, start educating people and talk about it a little bit more. And I think I'm I'm, I'm getting there because I'm now I'm a part of the Royal College um, um, training um, group where I deliver mental health uh, trainings for. The vets in the uk so that's that's a good uh, step in the right direction i think wonderful well thank you again for joining us well, and hopefully uh, we'll learn what's going on across the pond thank you thank you for having me thank you thank you so much for listening to consolidate that 
If you want to hear our new episodes, please find us on any podcast platform. Also, you can learn more about us on our website at vetintegrations.com.